Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob with James Jordan, and here Jordan's going to be discussing Genesis chapter 45, verse 16, through 46, verse 7, where Joseph sends for his father Jacob, and Jacob comes to his son in Egypt. Before we jump in, we do have an exciting announcement. From August 15th to September 19th, we're going to be doing our first virtual course with Alistair Roberts and James Jordan on a biblical theology of the law. For more information and registration, you can check the link in the show notes. We look forward to seeing many of you there. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapters 45 and 46 in the life of Jacob. Well, we are coming down to the end of the second trip down to Egypt that the brothers take, and Joseph has revealed himself to them, and well, I guess first of all, Judah has begged for Benjamin's life and offered his own, and Joseph has revealed himself to them, and the brothers have accepted him, and they've all been reconciled in chapter 15. And now we come to additional blessings that Pharaoh provides. And, of course, this carries forward this theme that has begun way back in Genesis chapter 12 when God made the promise to Abraham and said, Those who bless you, I will bless. You will be father of many nations, and that's the case. Joseph says he's the father of Pharaoh and therefore a father in Egypt. So Abraham is the father of Egypt now. And the Egyptians want to bless the Hebrews. And that's what we're going to see all the way through to the end, right down to when Jacob dies and all the Egyptians go out to join in mourning over that. And so that theme is going to be powerfully reinforced here. And, of course, it's a token of the fact that When the new covenant really comes and the greater Joseph comes and the gospel goes to the world, and it's a pledge that it will be successful over time. So we'll start in verse 16, which we really looked at last week, but just to get us going again, I'll read verses 16 to 20. The news was heard in Pharaoh's household, and they said, Joseph's brothers have come. It was good in Pharaoh's eyes and in the eyes of his servants. So we see that they're happy about everything that happens that's good to God's people, to God's priestly people. And then Pharaoh makes his promises here, or his pledges, his gifts. And Pharaoh said to Yosef, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your animals and go, come back to the land of Canaan, fetch your father and your households, and come to me. And I will give you the best things of the land of Egypt, so that you will eat of the fat of the land. And you, you have been commanded, do this. Take your wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives, and carry your father down, and come. And let not your eyes look with regret on your household wares, for the best things of all the land of Egypt, they are yours. So I've given you a little structure here. It's kind of obvious what he says. He says everything twice. He says, go get your father and return and enjoy the best things of Egypt. Then he says in verse 19 again, take wagons down, bring your father back. And then in verse 20, he says, enjoy the best things of Egypt. Don't worry about what you leave behind. What this does, in addition to showing Pharaoh blessing the Hebrews, 
is that Pharaoh's provisions go beyond Joseph. Joseph, as Pharaoh's lieutenant, can make certain provisions. Joseph says, come on down here and you will stay in the land of Goshen near me and I will sustain you there during the five years of famine. I'll keep you alive. That's what Joseph offers. Pharaoh goes considerably beyond that. He says, you'll enjoy the best things of the land of Egypt. Fox translates it good things, but he tells us down here in the footnote that it's literally best things, and he should have left it best things. You'll enjoy the best things, the fat of the land, and he also says that the stuff that you leave behind will be made up. Joseph couldn't make that promise either. Joseph is not the owner of Egypt, but Pharaoh is. So Joseph could say, come on down here, bring what you can, and I'll take care of you, and you'll stay alive. Pharaoh says, come on down here, and anything you leave behind, I'll make up to you, and it'll be even better. If you leave behind a wooden table, I'll give you a gold table once you get down here, and you'll enjoy the best things of the land of Egypt. So his gifts go way beyond And also, Joseph had said, go on back down with your donkeys and bring everything back up here. But Pharaoh says, I'll send some wagons down to help with the children and the women. So again, we can assume Joseph may not have had the power to make all these decisions. Whether he did or he didn't, we see Pharaoh adding to what Joseph gives and seeking to bless in a very literal, physical, financial way the people of God. Well, then in verses 21 to 24, Joseph and Pharaoh send gifts back to Jacob with the brothers. And there's an important reason for this, which is fairly obvious, and we'll see it in just a second. Verses 21 to 24. The sons of Israel did so. Yosef gave them wagons in accordance with Pharaoh's orders and gave them victuals for the journey. To each of them, each man, he gave changes of clothes, or literally robes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. And to his father, he sent in like manner, ten donkeys carrying the best things of Egypt, and ten she-asses carrying grain and bread and food for his father for the journey. And then he sent off his brothers, and they went, and he said to them, Do not be agitated on the journey. And they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan. Well, I got noted down here on verse 21, Joseph does these things in accordance with Pharaoh's orders, reminds us that Joseph is not in charge of Egypt, Pharaoh is, and Joseph is under him. And that's worth bearing in mind. I think it points to the fact that we're not yet to the fullness of the new covenant. But since this is a godly and converted Pharaoh... There's no problem. Later on, there will be a problem because Pharaoh is still in charge. And in Exodus, Pharaoh goes bad. A new Pharaoh arises who does not acknowledge Joseph, does not acknowledge the priestly people of God. Not till we come to Jesus do we get a Joseph who is not under another Pharaoh, but is in a sense in charge of everything. So there's something higher left to come. But Joseph is... Still the perfect servant, even though he's the ruler, and he does what Pharaoh says. Of course, he's happy to do it. Well, he gives them changes of clothes. I guess we might say is the climax of the clothing theme. These are cloaks, not tunics. They're really finery. 
they're the kind of robes that you would use indicating position and privilege and outer garments. And that's what he gives them. I think that we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where God robes Adam and Eve with tunics, which of course are symbols of royalty. And God says, you have taken of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and made yourself royalty, so now you're going to have to act like it and I'm going to kill animals and give you royal garments, royal tunics. The same word for Joseph's coat of many colors, which isn't a coat of many colors, it's a tunic, but it's a sign of his authority, which Jacob gives to him. And they resented those garments, but now Joseph gives similar garments, it's not the same word, but similar fine outer garments to his brothers, and they are elevated into positions similar to his. If we want to go with typology here, and there's no reason not to, it's when Jesus becomes king, then we all become kings with him. He sits on his throne in heaven, and then the saints sit on their thrones in heaven around him. So the brothers are given a position of elevation here because they are now in union with Joseph. And then a lot more is given to Benjamin. But the whole situation with Benjamin has changed. Before, giving Benjamin a bunch of stuff was at least partly a test of the brothers. Now, I think we have to see this not so much that Benjamin is my younger brother and I love him and I want to give him a bunch of extra stuff. But remember, Benjamin is the promised king. He is the child who was born right after God said kings will come from Jacob. So Benjamin does have a certain special place of honor at this point in the development of the kingdom. Now we've seen that Judah is showing himself to be a true king because he's willing to die for his people. And Joseph has shown himself to be a true king because he is a wise ruler. But Benjamin is the one who is particularly prophesied to have the kingly position when he's born. And of course Saul, the first king of Israel, is going to come from Benjamin. I think the honoring of Benjamin needs to be seen at least partly in those terms and not just in emotional, psychological terms. Joseph loves his younger brother and so gives him five times as much. Five is the number of power. And five is therefore associated with kings. There are five fingers in a hand, and a hand is what you use to hold things with. And marching five in a rank is the way a marching army is expressed in the Bible. We've looked at that before. So I think that honoring him with five, five royal robes, so to speak, and everybody else gets one royal robe, is a way of showing the kingly status of Benjamin. 300 pieces of silver, I don't know that there's anything particularly there. I meant to look this up and I didn't because I wasn't sure exactly how to do it, but There is a hexadecimal system in the ancient world, which is a system of 60s. And 300, of course, is 5 times 60. And if 60 shekels is equal to something, then this would be 5 of those somethings. 5 60-piece groups of silver. But that may or may not be there. And the text says 300, so I think that's where we have to leave it. And if that links to anything else, I didn't catch it. Well, we get an additional transport here in verse 23. Ten donkeys, ten she-asses. At least one commentator said, well, if there's only ten, 
why aren't there 11? There's 11 brothers. Maybe Benjamin stayed behind with Joseph. But I don't think that's, maybe he did. The text doesn't say it. They already had donkeys that they had brought down there with them. They didn't need these 20 extra donkeys, except that Joseph sends them back so that they can take a lot of extra stuff, not just grain and bread, but goodies, and to help transport the kingdom of Jacob, the nation of Israel, down to Egypt. He sends them additional donkeys and food. Now, why does he do that? Well, it's as a proof that the brother's story is true. The brothers are going to come down. They're going to say, Joseph is alive. Joseph wants you to come back down here to Egypt. Why should Jacob believe them? And we're going to see that he doesn't believe them when they tell him. It's only when the word is confirmed with a sign that it becomes powerful. In other words, it's just like what Jesus does for us when he gives us word and sacrament. This is essentially word and sacrament. There's going to be a message, and then there's going to be a bunch of food and gifts that are a sign that the message is true. And it's when both of those things are together that Jacob is convinced. So I think that the subtext of the theology here is right on with what the rest of the Bible says. God doesn't just give us his word. He also gives us signs to confirm his word. He doesn't just send Jesus, he also sends the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't just send a message, he also sends proof. And this is proof. Where would the brothers get these things? They steal all this stuff? Not likely. In fact, my guess would be that if we were there, Joseph may have sent a couple of Egyptians along as well, but nothing is said about them. Why not? you got a bunch of Egyptian servants here. Send a couple of them down as well to say, yes, this is true. But we're not told that, but that's what I would do. I'm sure Joseph is smarter than me. Well, finally, in verse 24, he sent his brothers off and they left. And he said to them, don't be agitated on the journey. Now, that's occasioned a good deal of comment. What does that mean? What's he saying? Don't fight with each other. It could mean that, but it's not likely given the fact that everything's been reconciled. It's more, don't start worrying about things. After all, Joseph has really mistreated them pretty bad over the last two years. He scares them, he throws them in jail, he puts the silver back in, they come back, gives them a nice meal, and then he chases them down, he's going to throw them in prison, and then all of a sudden he tells them he's Joseph, and they believe him, but... How long is that going to remain in your mind? On the way back, you start to think, is this another trick? Yeah, we know it's Joseph now, but do we really believe that he's forgiven us? It would be easy to let that slip out of your mind and start being fearful again. They've had a bad conscience for 20 years. They have mental habits that aren't going to be easy to break. And I think the proof that this is still in the back of their mind is the fact that after... Jacob dies, as you'll remember, the brothers come to him in in chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, this is years from now, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the ill we caused him? And so they beg forgiveness again. Well, that shows that this is not completely gone as far as they're concerned. They're going to need to be told again and again that they're forgiven, just as we do. God forgives us, but we tend to forget it. 
when bad things happen to us, we think, well, God hadn't really forgiven us at all. He's still punishing us. He's still against us. We're still sinners. So we have to be reminded again and again, no, you're forgiven. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if bad things are happening to you, it's just God's gentle chastisements to help you become a better person. Because those whom the Lord loves, He chastises from time to time. You have to keep being reminded of that because you keep forgetting it. And you keep wanting to go back on it and worry again. And so the brothers, as they go home, they're likely to start worrying about Joseph. Gee, that we were happy to find out that this was Joseph, but now learning it's Joseph makes it even worse. So originally it was this mysterious Egyptian man persecuting us. Now that we know it's Joseph, Joseph really does have some grudges against us. He has good reasons to persecute us. And so he says, don't be afraid. Don't worry about things. He's assuring them again of his good intentions, which as we see years later, he will have to do one more time. So I think that's what it means, and that's what most of the commentators felt it meant too. Not that they would fight among themselves, which really isn't the meaning of the word, but that they should not be afraid, they should not start worrying about Joseph's intentions. Well, now we come to Jacob's resurrection. It's got a real simple chiastic structure. He hears that Joseph lives, and then Jacob, it says, dies. His heart fails. And then he sees the word and sign. And then his heart revives, and he says, Joseph lives. He says, Joseph lives, and I have to go see him. So that's at the center of what happens here is the word and sign that come from Joseph, which bring life to Jacob's dead heart. Verse 25 to the end of the chapter. They went up from Egypt and came to Canaan to Jacob their father, and they told him, saying, Yosef is still alive. Indeed, he is ruler of all the land of Egypt. And his heart failed, for he did not believe them. But when they spoke to him all of Joseph's words that he had spoken to them. See, now it's Joseph's words, not their words, but Joseph's words. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him down... Joseph's words and Joseph's signs, their father Jacob's spirit came to life. And Israel said, notice the change of words here. It's not Jacob, but the individual, but Israel now acting again as enthroned captain of the community, restored now to life. Israel said, enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I must go and see him before I die. So, initially... He doesn't believe. He doesn't believe it because the words are coming from the brothers. They're telling him. Joseph is alive. We met with him. Well, they don't have any credibility with him. They've blown their credibility over the years. And we've already seen that. He doesn't trust them. Plus, the story is too fantastic to be believed. He figures they've just gone and done something else. He didn't trust them before. He wasn't sure they hadn't stolen the silver to bring back with them. And now he really doesn't believe them. Then when he hears Joseph's words preached to him by these brothers in Joseph's absence, and when he sees the sacraments, that is the signs that accompany it, then he comes to life again and he becomes Israel again, able to lead the community. And when Israel says, I must go and see him, then he's speaking for the clan, and that means the whole clan is going to go down to Egypt and see Joseph. That's the end of this long story. And we have another story that starts right away, and we can 
introduce it a little bit, but we've come back. We left. Jacob was dead. He says, you've caused me to die. If you take Benjamin down there, I'll die. When they come back, he dies. And now there's resurrection, and it starts all the positive things that are going to happen from here on. After this, everything is basically positive. Uh-huh. We don't know. I said at least one of the commentators had suggested that Benjamin maybe remain behind with Joseph, but nothing said, and I think it would be said if he had. So my guess is no. My guess is Benjamin came back with the brothers. I think Joseph would be too concerned of what might happen to Jacob if he didn't send him back. So. You know about uh, sending some Egyptians with all those wagons and and they not have enough men. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing is said about servants one way or the other in all of this. But we know that this sheikdom had a lot of servants. In fact, I will try to gather up the proof of that and put it together in one place for you to have it in your notes. It seems likely that when the brothers went down to Egypt, they had servants to help them. It doesn't seem very likely that when they moved to the land of Goshen, they left all their servants behind. Goshen is a fairly big place. The idea is you're going to need a lot of space. So four generations ago, Abraham had 318 trained fighting men. So who knows how many other people he had. So there's probably a lot of people here, and we're just not being told about it because we're just supposed to assume it. But like you say, if a bunch of wagons and extra donkeys were sent down, it's very likely that a few Egyptians went along to help. And so when Jacob sees the wagons, he may also see extra people. And while the brothers might have been able to steal some silver to bring home, there's no way they could have brought all this. Unless it had been given to him. Benjamin had been, if he had returned to Jacob, he had been the spokesman. He could have certainly convinced his father. Yeah. Yeah. It just says they told him, and we're not told how long the conversation went. It may not have lasted very long because these wagons were probably all showing up at the same time. Chapters 46 and 47, I have structured this way. I don't know if this is really entirely what is intended, but it does, again, seem to be a unit. Chapter 48 begins with Jacob taking sick and giving his blessings to Joseph's sons. And then the next chapter is the blessing on all the sons. That seems to start something new. There are several different stories in 46 to 47, but I think they're unified by the fact that it begins with God's promise here in 46, right at the beginning in verses 3 and 4. God says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will make a great nation of you. I will go down with you. I will bring you up, and I will bring you up. At the end of chapter 47, Jacob has Joseph swear to him that he will bring me up. When I lie down with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their tomb. So that creates a certain unity, and I've gotten a little outline here. I think that what's happening is God makes his promise, including a return to Egypt, and then we see in verses 5 to 7 of 46 the description of 
the group of people that are going down to Egypt. Jacob gathers all this stuff together and departs. And then we have a long list of all the sons and grandsons here in verses 8 to 27, which actually go down a couple of generations. When we get to it, we'll see that Benjamin's listed with about eight sons here. Benjamin isn't even old enough to get married at the time they go down to Egypt. And so this is actually a collocation of information to show something of the organization of the nation of Israel. Whose sons are whom. It's not just a genealogy, but I think it's giving us organization. And then the next thing we will come to is Joseph tells them that they're going to be in Goshen. And there's a big stress on that. They got directions to Goshen. They came to the region of Goshen. Joseph came down to Goshen. He says, you're going to settle in the land of Goshen. He brings them to Pharaoh, and he says they're in Goshen, and we want to settle in Goshen, and Pharaoh says settle in Goshen. So there's a big Goshen emphasis here in 26, 28 to 47, 6. And then what I think is the center of it is when Jacob comes into Pharaoh and Jacob blesses Pharaoh. I think that's the center of it. The fact that Pharaoh is basically down on his knees and Jacob is blessing him, I think is climax of this whole thing. We go down into Egypt in order to bring blessing to the Gentiles. And that's the evangelistic thrust here. Jesus says, go out and disciple all nations. And I think that is hinted at here as a major part of this. It's not just that we go down to Egypt to escape the famine. It's also that we go down to Egypt in order to bring a blessing to the nations. And that's, of course, what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission is not stay here in Jerusalem. It's go out to the uttermost parts of the earth and bring the blessing with you. So I think that's the center of the story. And I like this outline because it puts this at the center as the climax. And then in chapter 47, 11, and 12, it says, They settled in the land of Ramses, not Goshen, it's called Ramses. We'll really have to think about what that might mean when we get to it. And then we have the new organization of Egypt, which is all these Egyptians sell everything they have and become serfs of Pharaoh. And we'll have to ask ourselves what that means, but Egypt is reorganized now. And then matching the transporting of Jacob's nation down to Egypt, I think, is another statement that Israel settled in the region of Goshen in verses 27 and 28. And then at the end again, Joseph's promise to return Jacob's bones from Egypt. Start with God's promise to do the same and then Joseph's promise at the end. So I think that's the structure and that's the one I'll be using unless I come across something so much better that I interrupt and give it to you, give you a different structure. Well, today let's just start. Look at the promises that God gives to Jacob here in verses 1 to 4 and we'll be done. Chapter 46, 1 to 4, this is God's promise when God meets with Jacob. Israel traveled with all that was his and came to Beersheba. And he slaughtered slaughter offerings. This is really peace offerings here. Peace offerings to the God of his father, Isaac. Your Bible probably has sacrifices. The word sacrifice in your translation almost always means peace offerings doesn't mean just any offering. The general word for bloody sacrificial offerings is the word offering. But the word sacrifice in the Old Testament has to do with peace offerings, which is a shared meal. 
Verse 2, God said to Israel in visions of the night, He said, Jacob, Jacob. And He said, Here I am. And He said, I am the Mighty One, the God of your Father. Do not be afraid of going down to Egypt, for a great nation I will make of you there. And I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will bring you up, yes, up again. And Joseph will lay his hand on your eyes. This isn't terribly complicated here, just a few things to take notice of. One is, Beersheba is pretty much the border of the land. They've lived in these places before, and it's where Isaac lived for many, many years. And I think maybe that's why it says, slaughtered peace offerings to the God of his father Isaac. Isaac is particularly associated with Beersheba, seven wells, although Abraham had lived there as well. And so, this is an important place historically where God was worshipped and where covenants were made. Covenant was made with Abimelech at Beersheba by Abraham, and another covenant was made with another Abimelech at Beersheba by Isaac. Abimelech is a Philistine, which makes him an Egyptian. So there are a number of correspondences here, but perhaps the fact that it's the end of the land is important. You get past Beersheba and you're moving into the wilderness and then you go to Egypt. So we're right on the edge. And do we make this journey or not? Do we cross this boundary or not? And so Israel has a feast here. Peace offerings are sacrifices where you share the meal. The reason that the early church, and even today, most of the church, except for our Protestant churches, refer to the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice, is that in the Bible the word sacrifice means a shared meal. We think of it as the word sacrifice means killing the animal, and it does. But as I said, the particular word zavak is used almost exclusively for peace offerings, and peace offerings were the ones where you share most of the food with the people who are worshiping. God gets part of it, and you eat part of it. And so since it has to do with a meal, that's why some parts of the church think it's appropriate to call the Lord's Supper a sacrifice, and that's what they mean by it. We tend, in our use of the word, to mean something that means killing an animal or actually putting something to death in a new way, and so we don't want to call the Lord's Supper a sacrifice. It just depends on what you mean by the word, how you define it. But that's what he does, and I think we have to see that this community of people are sharing in a covenant-renewing meal here. There's a little feast here. They kill a bunch of animals, offering to the Lord, and the people have peace here as an expression of peace with God. And also, you see, it's a prayer for peace. Implied, God give us peace. We're a bit nervous. Should we do this? We're leaving the land. Seems like the right thing to do. Joseph has told us to come down. But we want to hear from you as well that you're at peace with this. So I think that's what's going on. And God comes to Israel in the visions of the night. And again, where Israel is used throughout here, Israel is leading his people. It's not just him as an individual. But when God speaks to him, he speaks to him as an individual and gives particular assurances to him as an individual and says that he as an individual will be brought back up out of the land of Egypt. It's also true that the nation of Israel will be brought up out of the land of Egypt. God says, Jacob, Jacob. And here we have a vision of the night. That's when God speaks to everybody, really, but particularly Jacob. 
Jacob leaves the promised land the first time and he comes to Bethel and in the night he sees the ladder reaching up to heaven as he's leaving the promised land. As he comes back into the promised land, God comes to him, fights with him all night long. Well, not all night long, but for a while till exhausted during the night. And that's at night as well. God has also appeared to him when he comes back from Bethel. That's not said to be a night. But back when God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 15, it was at night in a vision of the night. And at that time, perhaps it's important, God came to Abram at night. God put Abraham to sleep. And in his dream, Abraham kills his animals and lays them apart. And God says to Abraham, when the Spirit of God moves between the parts of the animals, in chapter 15, God says to Abraham during the night in this vision, you must know that your seed will be sojourners in the land, not theirs. They will put them in servitude and afflict them for 400 years. The nation to which they are in servitude, I will bring judgment on them, and after that they will go out with great property. In the fourth generation they will return here. Now, Jacob knows about this. Jacob is about to go down into Egypt. The prophecy is, you go down to Egypt, you'll be taken into slavery. And so, Jacob knows that. So he wants assurances from God that this is the right thing to do. Because that's exactly what is going to happen, and Jacob has reason to know that that's exactly what's going to happen. We go down there, we're going to go into slavery. Of course, if we stay here, we'll die. (laughs) We'll starve. So which is worse, to starve or to go into slavery? The Egyptians are going to face exactly this same question in chapter 47. That's when they sell all their land to Pharaoh. And it says they became Pharaoh's slaves. It's either become slaves or die. So which is better? To die or to come into servitude, at least for a period of time. Well, those aren't real happy choices, but the choice is pretty obvious. And there's no doubt about which you're supposed to do. You're supposed to live because there's always hope. But beyond that, God says, don't worry about it because that's not in the near future. I'll take care of you when you're down there. And even when the servitude comes into place, I will still deliver the nation. So that's essentially the context, and I think the fact that it happens at night calls us back preeminently to the fact that the initial statement about going down to Egypt was given at night to Abraham, and that shows us something of what's in Jacob's mind. God comes to him at night, and he says, verse 3, I am El. Your Bible may say El or God. It's the word El, not Elohim, and it means the Mighty One. When that's used, it's always used in particular context. It means don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm the Mighty One. El Shaddai is the full form, the really Mighty One, the Mighty One who is uh, like a mountain or something, and you can trust me. Here it is, I am El, the Mighty One, the God of your Father. So don't be afraid, because I'm mighty, I'm powerful. And then he makes four promises to him there that are so familiar we don't need to discuss them. First of all, he says, I will make a great nation of you there. There's a lot of people now, but they're not a nation yet. There's all these brothers, and they don't get along with each other, and they're separated from each other, and each got his own flocks, and they've moved apart from each other and only occasionally see each other. I'm going to form you up into a nation while you're there. That's part of what the slavery is going to be about. After the slavery for a while... They're not so much divided up into 
Well, it tends to merge them together to go through this. And then second of all, he says, I will go down with you to Egypt. And Jacob can believe this. When Jacob left the promised land and God appeared to him at Bethel, he said, I'll go with you. That was the promise. I'll go with you when you go to Mesopotamia and you live with Laban for 20 years. And now he says, I'll go down with you to Egypt. So I'll be with you. And he says, I myself will bring you up again. Yes, up again. So you'll go down, you'll come up. More of this death and resurrection, down into the pit, coming back up type language here. He says, I will bring you up. Because Jacob is being addressed as an individual, I think that there's something here for him as an individual. His bones will be brought up. But of course, it also implies the nation. And then it says, Joseph will lay his hand on your eyes. If you're really worried about Joseph, if Joseph is really there, he is there. And when you die, you'll be with Joseph. Joseph will close your eyes. When people die, their eyes are usually open and someone has to close them. And that's what this means. And it's Joseph who will do it. God himself tells him that Joseph is there. Once again, I think we have to see that no matter how much Jacob wanted to believe that Joseph was alive, and after seeing all the proofs and hearing all the testimony, he did believe it. Still, it's hard to believe it hour after hour, day after day, when you are so used to thinking it can't be true. So God assures him. He gives an additional assurance. Well, we'll stop there, and we'll take it up at that point next week. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.